to the end of David's reign. I don't think we'll get there tonight, but Lord willing, we will get there one day. <clears throat> We're going to pick it up uh, in chapter 19. So if you want to be in chapter 19 with me. Nope, sorry. Back it up. Chapter 20. 20 and 21. Here we go. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, who blew his trumpet. So here's what happened. Remember, David has just come back into Jerusalem. He's entered back into the, to the city, but as he's coming back in, as uh, really began to be the case at the beginning of David's reign. Think back. David first becomes king. Saul has a son who's on another throne. His name is Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth ruled over ten tribes. David ruled over two. We see that same division over and over and over again. The two tribes go by the name Judah, and the ten tribes go by the name Israel. And we'll see that natural division that is occurring between the tribes be the point of a split later on at the, after the time of Solomon. So David, as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, he's got a bunch of Judahites with him. The tribe of Judah is leading him in. And the other ten tribes get mad. The other ten tribes are upset. Well, how come Judah got to lead you in? How come we didn't get to lead you in? So they get a little irritated and upset. Whenever we, we look at the pages of Scripture, I love two things about it. I love that the pages of Scripture rightly dictates to us human nature. Human nature is, the problem of, with human nature is to be selfish. What about me? How come I didn't have, where's my name on the billboard? How come uh, I didn't, my name was underneath hers. Her name was above mine in the bulletin. How come sure, her name went above mine in the in the credits for the play, whatever. You won't believe the silly things that divide people. I know a church that split because the elder was given, uh, an elder was given a smaller portion of meat than the child next to him at a potluck. That was the beginning. And it's ridiculous. It is lame. The ten tribes are upset and, and irritated because... Judah is leading them in. The reality is their focus is on themselves. Whenever we have problems between brothers, now in this case the nation of Israel, in our case within the church, whenever we have problems between brothers, whenever there's an issue, the core deal is selfishness. All the time. Somebody's being selfish. And someone is clinging to their rights. They don't have a right to treat me that way. Now, Philippians chapter 2 would beg to differ. Philippians chapter 2 would say, to esteem others greater than yourself. And if that is our focus, it's hard to have a problem with how somebody else treats us. But if we're focused on self, then we will say, oh, that's not right. I can't believe it. I don't deserve that. Well, anytime we say that... I, I have a struggle with where are we coming from. Where are we coming from? I deserve a lot worse than what I get. I am an unholy man standing before a holy God. What I deserve, 
I do not get. That's called mercy. I get what I don't deserve. That's called grace. And so in, in response to those things, our relationship with others should then dictate that we treat others the way God has treated us. And that will remove that tension. But the Bible tells the truth about us. The Bible tells the truth about us. We have a real problem doing that. So ten tribes are mad. And as the ten tribes are mad and David comes in, there's, there's this fire ready to burn. And all they need is someone to ignite the spark. And in chapter 20, verse 1, that somebody ignites a spark. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, The rebel's name was Sheba. Sheba. He blew the trumpet. Everybody's irritated. They just need somebody to rally behind. So Sheba says, We have no share in David. His first charge is, David is not sovereign. As king of the nation, they are saying David has no right to rule over these other tribes. If he wants to rule, let him have Judah. That's what he's saying. That's the, the first cause of his rebellion. David has no share. He has no sovereignty over us. Then he goes on to say, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of David. Or I mean in the son of Jesse. So he, re, he reveals, he says, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. He's saying... David belongs to Judah. By saying the son of Jesse, he's identifying the tribe from which he comes. So he's identifying David with Judah. He's saying he shouldn't be sovereign over the other tribes. So he says, every man to his tents, O Israel. Now that call is to the ten tribes, which will become the ten northern tribes when the nation divides. Proverbs chapter 16 tells us that there are several things that God hates. One of those is... A man who sows discord between brethren. A man who sows discord between brethren. And that's what he's doing. When ten tribes rebel against two, and these people are fighting, understand that they are all related. Do we get that? The twelve tribes were twelve, what? Brothers, right? Now, some of the, some of the uh, relatives become a little more shirt tail as time goes on. But the 12 tribes were all from the same family. So you're talking about cousins. You're talking about relations. And so when a man stands up and says, we have no part in David. He's not going to rule over us. He's from Judah. Let him have Judah. He's causing discord between brethren. And blood gets shed and people die. Whenever we get selfish. Blood gets shed and people die. When the church, people get hurt. Feelings get hurt. People walk away from a relationship with the Lord. People give up on Him, go away, say forget it. There's a bunch of backbiters and people in church trying to take advantage, what have you. It, your selfishness may not put blood on the ground, but it isn't any different. It's not any different. What does the Bible charge us to be? Inasmuch, in the book of Romans, inasmuch as it is possible for you, be what? At peace with most people? All. All. Make peace. Somebody comes to make peace, whether you think right or wrong, your charge is make peace. Make peace. Here we see the division occur. 
So it says, so every man of Israel deserted David. Ten tribes are going to run. And they follow Sheba the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So David came to his house at Jerusalem. So this is what greets him when he comes back. So David's life the last couple years has been quite a bit of turmoil. Wouldn't you agree? We remember all that turmoil was caused by... gets back multiple seeds he plants one seed of sin and four children are going to die uh, countless people in different rebellions are going to die because of that one sin what does that illustrate for us it illustrates the danger of sin we treat sin like it's no big deal we treat it like oh that's just a little thing it's just a small thing sin kills is what it does all the time and that's what the Lord is emphasizing for us in the story. Now, so David comes back in the city. There's all this turmoil. But he's got a problem. And before he goes and deals with Sheba, he has ten concubines or wives without rights that he left to take care of his palace. And remember that when he left? He left them to take care of his house. And his son Absalom came in, set up a tent on top of the palace, and raped the ten concubines. And David needs to take care of him. So before he takes off after this rebellion, before he deals with the next problem, he's going to first deal with those ten who were abused by Absalom. And so his, that's what he does as he comes into Jerusalem. It says, now, David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. David's relationship with them is broken. The, the scripture laid out, it's a real twisted thing, especially because it's an issue between father and son. And so what David does is he does the honorable thing for them. He takes them from his palace, he sets them up, he supports them for the rest of their life. They never want for anything. He makes sure they have everything that they need. And he no longer is uh, acts toward them as a husband would. He sets them aside. He, in, in essence, he puts them aside and not to say, I don't want to look at you. I don't want to have to deal with you. He sets them aside, sets them apart, and treats them like royalty until the day they die. He's going to take care of them. Sometimes in our society today, we lose sight of the value that God puts on uh, a sexual relationship between two people. According to the Word of God, anytime two people had sex, the man was responsible for the woman for life. Anytime. That was God's law. 
Later on, God gives them a writ of divorce. Why? Because of the attitude of their heart. But today, people look at it so lightly, like such a little thing. It's, what's the big deal? I don't understand what the problem is. And wh what they don't realize is, is that intimacy that's been given to man and woman through marriage is a gift from God. And it's distorted by the enemy and disrupted by him. And therefore, it totally ruins and destroys lives today. Because it is not just a physical union. It is a physical and a spiritual union. And you leave pieces of yourself behind. So the way that God wanted people to see sexual intimacy was to recognize it as something that was very, very important. So God said, if you are going to sleep with someone else, understand that you are taking financial responsibility for them for life. And it would put it in its proper view. Not trying to steal something away from somebody else or take advantage of somebody else or rip somebody else off. So because David's son had done that, David sets up the ten concubines. No longer considered concubines. Now they're going to be in a place of seclusion. The idea being nobody else is going to hurt them. Understand that society... In that society, women had no rights. What happened to those ten women made them untouchable, unclean forever. If they were left in society and nobody watched out for them, they would never own a thing. They wouldn't be able to get a job. They wouldn't be able to work. They wouldn't be able to feed themselves. They'd be destitute and shunned by everyone. But David does what the son of David does. He takes the outcast and he cares for him. And he makes sure before he deals with anything else that these ten women who were abused are going to be taken care of. That they're going to be okay. So he sets them up. <clears throat> he sets them up. So they were shut up to the day of their death living in widowhood. David declared them widows. Why? Why would they be widows? Because the man who lie with him, his name was what? Absalom is dead. So he declares them widows. Because of what Absalom had done to them, he wouldn't disobey God's law and go into a woman who belonged to his son. So he set them up as widows and he cared for them the rest of their life. I like that that before David deals with all the other stuff, he, he cared more about the people that were hurt. He's still got this crazy rebel who's trying to cause another civil war like Absalom did, and he still needs to deal with that, but before he does, he's not going to lose sight that the thing that really matters in life is the people and the relationships that we have with one another. Before we deal with what somebody said about us, what somebody done about us, taking care of those who have been hurt, those who are injured, those who are struggling, and those who are suffering. So Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus would have us do this, and here David does the same thing. Now in verse 4, he turns his mind to the rebellion. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa David had elevated. Remember last time. 
Joab, who's a picture of the flesh, always doing whatever he thought he should do so he could get ahead. Joab had killed Absalom after David said not to. So David demotes Joab and puts Amasa, who was the leader of Absalom's army, to try to unite the two people groups. He puts Amasa in charge. Unfortunately for Amasa, immediately when they come into Jerusalem, there's a problem. And Amasa has never really had the opportunity to make a connection with the men he had just been fighting against. It hasn't been that long ago when they were at war against Amasa. Now Amasa's in charge. Now he's the general. And he's on their side. And David says to Amasa, now you go and assemble my army. It's one thing when Joab would go blow the trumpet because the men who had fought with Joab would come and rally around Joab. When Amasa goes and blows the trumpet, everybody's like, who's that guy? What's he doing? Why is he blowing the trumpet? I'm not sure I want to follow him. So David asked him to gather these men together, but look what it says. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. He was given so much time to go assemble. Now, if he couldn't assemble them in that time, he should have come back to David and explained what was going on. But he doesn't come back. He just doesn't show up. He's out there trying to assemble them. Nobody will come to him. Nobody recognizes his leadership. So he's having a hard time with it. He doesn't go to David to deal with the problem. So David's left there looking around. Well, I got to do something. So he goes to Abishai. Abishai is one of uh, David's mighty men. One of the guys that are in his special forces. He's Joab's brother. The scripture says, So David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will cause more harm than Absalom. So take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find himself fortified cities and escape us. So Abishai, David says, Well, I don't know what, what happened to Amasa. So Abishai, you go. You go and, and let's at least, you know, start the pursuit. And we'll see what happens after that. So look what it says in verse 7. So Joab's men, with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, went out after him. This is not the whole of his army. This is that fighting force that we read about occasionally throughout the scripture called the mighty men of David. There were the three mightiest We'll see in chapter 23. Then there were the next three. Then there were the next 30. David divided them in a, in a number of different ways. But I can tell you this. Every single member of the mighty men of David had done some incredible feat in battle. I mean, even the, the guys who were far down the list had done incredible things through the power of the Lord in battle. And these are the guys Abishai takes. So Abishai takes off with these guys. He's got Joab's men and all the mighty men, and they take off. Now, it says, When they were at the large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So here they get to Gibeon, seven miles away, somewhere wherever Amasa is trying to gather up the troops, and however many he has, he meets them at Gibeon. He goes to Gibeon. And so he comes to Gibeon, it says, Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. So Joab's wearing all of his armor. And, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. 
And uh, as he was going forward, it fell out. So Joab's working a scheme. Joab's got all his armor on. He's got a sword on his side in its sheath. And as he walks up to Amasa, before he gets to him, it falls out. Falls out on the ground. So Amasa doesn't really think anything of it. If Joab had drawn his sword and ran at him, Amasa would think, whoop, this is bad, right? But as he's coming up to him, you know, maybe he pretends to trip or something, his sword spills out, and he reaches over and picks up his sword with one hand, and with the other hand, he reaches for Amasa's beard. He would reach for his beard. It was a part of the greeting. They'd grab a beard, kiss one cheek, and then the other cheek. If you know George Krostev, when he comes and sees you after he hasn't seen you for a long time, unless you're rusty, he's going to grab what beard you have or don't have, or your cheeks, and he's going to kiss you on each one of your cheeks. That's how he says hello. And so the same way with Joab. It was part of, so Amasa is not thinking anything of it. He's not, he's not stunned by the idea that Joab has a sword in his hand because he just watched him trip and spill it out on the ground. So it makes sense that he would bend over and pick it up. And so Joab comes to him this way. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And he took Amasa by the beard as his right hand, or with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasa did not notice the sword in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, thus he died. He cuts open his gut, his intestines fall out. You don't die from that right away. And then he leaves him in the middle of the road, moaning. And that was Joab's cousin. See, when we live by the flesh, we really don't care who we hurt and what we do as long as we get ahead. As long as it looks good for us. That's the picture of the flesh. And that's what Joab is a, over and over and over again. Joab is an example of that. Now, there are times where Joab says good, neat, spiritual things. But over most of his life, he is a picture of a man walking in the flesh. He kills his cousin. What did his cousin do to him? David had made peace. My question to you is, where is the real rebellion? David's going to deal with Sheba. But as we've gone through the history of David, how many times has David made a decree and Joab has disobeyed it? How many times has David said, when David made peace uh, with Ishbosheth and the general of Ishbosheth's army came, Joab killed him because Joab saw that he was going to lose his position and it was going to affect him, so he killed his rival. Later on, David says, don't touch Absalom. Absalom is caught in a tree by his hair. Would have been pretty easy to take him, right? Wouldn't have been very dangerous. Just cut his hair, pull him out the tree, put him in chains, bring him back to David. At least then he has an opportunity to repent. Maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But, but he would have had an opportunity. But Joab took it upon himself to kill him. David made Amasa the general of the army. When Amasa comes... To take control as David had decreed, David the king, Joab killed Amasa. 
every step that David takes that is not what Joab approves of meets with Joab destroying David's plans. David is a picture of walking in the spirit. Joab is a picture of walking in the flesh. The Bible says the flesh is always at war with the spirit. There are times in our lives where God is going to decree that things happen a certain way. And if we are going to walk after the spirit, then we will learn from the example of David, who never self-promoted, but waited for God to open the door to walk in. He didn't form a rebellion of his own. He didn't do anything on his own. He waited for God to move, and he went in. Joab is the opposite. Wow, you know, I was in charge of, of David's armies, and I disobeyed the king, and now he's busted me, and he put somebody else in charge. And instead of submitting himself to the hand of the chastisement of his king, over and over and over, he rebels against the king. So my question is, where's the real rebellion? The real rebellion is happening in the ranks. And David recognizes something. He's going to tell his 12-year-old son, when I die, Joab is going to try to take the throne. So when you take control, first order of business, Joab has to die. How many men has he murdered? At some point, the Bible declares that the guilty blood cries out to the Lord for justice. That the land is defiled when a man murders and is not brought to justice. The word declares it. If that's true, how guilty is our country? How much blood is shed that goes un, uh, uh, without justice? Without justice. Tons and tons. So the same here. Joab kills Amasa. Now look what happens. It's, it's really kind of gross. It says, Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So... Joab and Abishai just walk away like, well, you know, they're used to killing people. What did Jesus say? If you live by the sword, how do you die? By the sword, right? So, Joab and Abishai, they're, they're headed off. And it says, meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Now, whose name was mentioned first? Whoever favors who? Joab. And then, oh, by the way, and follows David. Then follow Joab. So the call is, is, which side are you going to choose? But look at verse 12. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. So while this is all going on, there's a man who has been disemboweled. And you don't die from being disemboweled. You may not bleed to death. You just suffer. So there he is on the road, his bowels on the road, wallowing, moaning, crying out, screaming, whatever it is he's doing, trying to, to put his entrails back inside his body while they're saying, if you're going to follow David, follow Joab. And all the men are kind of stunned by what they see. So it says, when the men saw all the people stood still, they wouldn't move. They were, they were blown away by the, by the brutality of Joab. 
So he called for him to follow him, and nobody would move because this guy's in the middle of the road. He's wallowing. I mean, it's a, it's a hard sight to see. So they pick up his body, and they throw him off the side of the road, and they cover him up so nobody will see him. And there Joab leaves his cousin to die. All so he could have what he wants. So he could have what he needs. So they moved the Masa from the highway to the field, threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So they're going to all follow Joab now. So David has, in essence, busted Joab three times. And three times Joab killed the guy who David put in charge of him. So David's not going to bust him again. David's going to take care of him a different way. He's going to put him in the hands of the Lord because he's going to entrust the justice be dealt out to Joab by a 12-year-old boy. So before you think, oh, David's just doing it a sneaky way and Solomon's going to take care of him. Small, Solomon's a little kid when he takes control. He's a little one. But Solomon, because of, the, the, because of the hand of God is with him, he's going to deliver him from the plans of Joab later on in his life. We'll see that as we come together. So, they follow Joab. And they went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Maacah and all the Barites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. So the army grows a little bit and they come and besiege him and Abel of Beth Maacah. And they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So they come up, they find out Sheba's inside this city, Beth Maacah. So they come to the city, and they build a ramp up to the wall, and they're starting to tear down the wall of the city. Now I want you to imagine what it's like to be the people in the city. Why is David's army attacking us? Why are they beating down the wall? Why is the army come running up to the city? I'm sure they see the army come up. They go, hey, close the gates. I don't know what's going on, but there's an army coming. And then they sit outside and they build a rampart, however long that took to build the ramp to come up the wall. And then they begin to try to tear down the wall. And the people, still, nobody has said what they're there for. What is going on? We're just, uh, we're just bringing the attack. So verse 16 says, A wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, Come near that I might speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he said, I am. And she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he said, I'm listening. So she spoke saying, They used to talk in former times, saying they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. And I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? So what are you doing here? We are a wise and peaceable city. People have come to us in the past for advice. We've always been known for the wisdom that we have, what are you doing here? 
Now, don't think that Joab, people aren't, don't tell horror stories about Joab. I don't want you to think that they, what would they, moms would say to their kids? You better be good. If you're not good, then Joab's going to get you. I mean, he was that, he was that kind of guy in Israel. So everybody, nobody knows maybe who he is, but everybody was afraid of him. They heard the stories. You think that all the people he'd killed in his life, nobody ever heard of Joab? They heard of Joab. So she, she calls out to Joab, says, we're known for being wise and peaceable. What are you doing? So Joab answered and said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. This is not so, but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I'll depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. There's some things that you thought you'd never read in the Bible. Man, it's, it's, it just doesn't get better, does it? The downward spiral keeps going. Problems keep arising. The way they deal with them is amazing. So, then the woman, in her wisdom, went to all the people. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. They withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Israel. Verse 23, David's going to lay out for the officers. They're going to continue to be his officers until the day he dies. And there's some interesting things in there. But before we get there, what in the world is this story all about what is going on we see a man rebelling dividing the brethren hiding out in a city and that city where that man hid did not protect him because of what he did but rather threw his head over the wall so that there would be peace the bible tells us that where there is no wood there can be no fire the bible says that the tongue is a weapon a small thing but what a fire it kindles the bible talks about tail bearers and gossipers as those when they speak that are starting fires all over the place but there is a responsibility for those who hear what's happening from a brother who's trying to sow discord between brethren to cause rebellion to cause problems and if you won't listen he has no power where there's no wood there's no fire they would not abide him in their midst because they believed what the word says god hates a man that sows discord now, today, it is not necessary to chop off anybody's head. Today, all you would have to do is do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother comes to you and he does something and you recognize there's something wrong with what he's doing. He's sowing discord between brethren. He's sowing the seeds of rebellion. He's causing trouble. Then rather than listen to him or saying, I'm going to pray for him. The Bible says, if you know about it, you personally know about it. You've heard it, not hearsay. 
then you go to your brother and you tell him his fault face to face. And if your brother hears you, you have gained a brother. That's what the Bible tells us to do. That's how we deal with the seeds of rebellion now. If you let that rebellion go, people are going to lose their heads. Dumb things are going to happen. Churches are going to split. You're going to have two bodies that, that can't support two bodies, but are divided in the middle because the carpet was the wrong color. Or somebody painted the piano. Or somebody didn't give me a big enough portion at a potluck. It's all stupid. The lesson is, it's our responsibility. Me, who hears it. The one who the brother or sister comes to. It's my responsibility in order to gain him or her to say, Hey, 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 what you're doing is wrong. Sowing seeds of discord is wrong. If you got a problem with David, go talk to David. Don't divide the people. Deal with the issue. David sets up his cabinet after this event, and he's going to hold it, as I said, until the time that he dies. But there's some interesting things that we want to see. First, Joab was over all the army of Israel. David is not going to deal with him right now. David is going to trust in the hand of God to do the work to protect the throne of David against Joab. By the way, you remember what God promised David? David said, I want to build you a house, Lord. And the Lord said, David, you're, you're, you're a man of war. Your hands are bloody. You can't build the house. You remember what God said? I'll build you a house. And even if your kin are mean and evil, I will perpetuate your throne forever. So when David says something's got to be done about Joab, he puts him in the hands of God and God's going to deal with it. God's going to provide. God's going to do his thing. So Joab stays over all the army. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. The Cherethites and the Pelethites are synonymous with the special forces of David's army. So, Benaiah is going to become the general over all the armies of Solomon when Joab dies. Benaiah is going to be the man. Right now, Benaiah is in charge of all the special forces. Adarim was in charge of the revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was a recorder. Shiva was a scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was chief minister under David. 2 Samuel chapter 8, it says, And David's sons were the Konaim. David's sons at one time held the position of special minister. The devotional leaders, the song leaders, the worship leaders, they were a part of the ones who were doing special ministry. But David's sons have rebelled, turned their back on the Lord, perished, and so David replaces them. And they're replaced with Ira the Jerite. He becomes the devotional leader 
under David for uh, the people and for David himself. And we come into chapter 21. Chapter 21 begins, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. The Bible declares, if there's a famine, God said, somebody needs to talk to me because there's a problem. He said, I promise I'll give you the rain. They didn't have irrigation. They counted on rain for their crops. God said, I will give you the rain. You know why the children of Israel always struggled with going into Baal worship? Because Baal was the god of the rain. So they would start praying to Baal because they wouldn't trust God. God said, if there's a famine, if the rain doesn't fall, somebody needs to talk to me. Something's wrong. Come talk to me. We'll get it all straight and the rain will come. So the Bible says there are three years of drought. Three years of drought in David's reign. And so David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were a people during the time of Joshua. Joshua was told to wipe out all the Canaanites, remember? And so he's coming through and he's had a couple of victories. And the Gibeonites are Canaanites. And they hear, man, Joshua's wiping us all out. So let's pull a little prank on them. We're going to dress like we've traveled from a long ways. And we're going to come to make peace. So they decorate, they dress up as different people. And they come and they try to make a peace treaty with Joshua. And Joshua doesn't seek the Lord's counsel. He sees them. He recognizes they look like they traveled from afar off. He looks at their bread that they're carrying, and their bread's all moldy. He says, these guys have been on a long journey. They're probably outside of the borders of the land. Yeah, we'll make peace with you. So he signs a peace treaty. And then, a few days later, he finds them again in the next city he was supposed to conquer. But the Bible says, keep your vow. So Joshua kept his promise. And the Gibeonites became servants around the temple and servants in the in the nation of Israel but they were never conquered and God expected the people to keep the promise they made even though it was to their hurt and then comes Saul now the Bible doesn't tell us what happened but sometime in the reign of Saul he attacked and killed Gibeonites and God has withheld the rain at this point in David's reign, because he said, the blood of the innocent cry out for justice. God said that, that the blood of the innocent would cry out for justice and defile the land. So he put in place in that society what we call today as a lex talionis. The lex talionis. You've heard of it, right? Eye for an eye, two for two. Now, Jesus addresses the Lex Talionis in his Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say, and Jesus gave further instruction on grace and mercy. But at the time in society, Lex Talionis was grace and mercy. Because if you had attacked the Gibeonites, and there's no justice, then later on the Gibeonites attack you, and then they say, oh, the Gibeonites attacked us, and then you attack them. And then they say, oh, they attacked us, and then you attack them. You have these generational wars where two sides are trying to wipe each other out. Have you ever heard of that before? 
You know the IRA, right? The Protestants and the Catholics killing each other in Ireland? That is because there's no justice. There was no lex talionis. There was not an eye for an eye. So because you took my eye, I'm going to take your arms and legs. I'm going to kill everyone in your family. And then they overreact. And then they overreact. And years later, you still have wars. You guys remember there used to be a country called Yugoslavia. And you have two groups there that are wiping each out, each other out. Yeah? Bosnias and Serbs spending all kind of time trying to wipe each other out. Why? Because there's no lex talionis. There's no justice. So God said there has to be justice. When man sheds man's blood by man, his blood is to be shed. It doesn't mean he spends an eternity in hell because he's done a horrible sin. It means their justice is satisfied and two groups don't go to war. But now there has not been justice from the time of Saul. There has not been that justice. And so the Lord is saying to David, the blood of the Gibeonites is crying out to me. Something needs to be done. There needs to be peace or there's going to be perpetual war. So verse 2, the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and of Judah. Remember Saul got in trouble because he didn't wipe out the Amorites? So most commentators think in order to try to gain God's favor, he went and slaughtered a bunch of Gibeonites. Which God didn't ask him to do. He just tried to do that to earn favor. We don't know what he did, but whatever he did, he killed them. Therefore David said, What shall I do for you? And what shall, and, uh, and what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Atonement means at one minute. How do I make peace? How do I make it right? What has to be done to make it right? Where do we find, how do we gain lex talionis? What was done to you has been reciprocated so that there can be peace. So, the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, What, uh, what you say, I shall do. So they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I'll give them. Now, they want to hang them on a tree. Deuteronomy says, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. They become uh, a sacrifice of peace to make peace between Gibeah and the children of Israel for what Saul did. Now, we don't know how many Saul killed. It is probably much more than seven. So they say, of, because Saul slaughtered so many of our people, let seven of his descendants also die, pay the price for what Saul did, and we'll have peace. And David says, okay. But the crazy stories keep coming. And trying to reconcile. What's going on? What's, 
what's happening? What's going on in the heads of the people? Well, it says then, the king spared Mephibosheth. We all remember Mephibosheth, right? The lame son of Jonathan, uh, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, another Mephibosheth, different one, the two sons of Rizpah, uh, the daughter of Ai, uh, whom she bore to Saul. So this is a, a, a concubine of Saul, who had two sons, and five sons of Michael. Now, that Michael is should be Merab, Merab, Michael. David's wife, Michael, had no children. And there is uh, an issue within the text between Michael and Merab. Some texts say Michael, some texts say Merab. Merab was the oldest daughter of Saul, and she had children. Michael had none. So most commentators say it should have been Merab somehow. They got Michael in there. If you look at your notes in your Bible, it'll say the same thing. So the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom uh, she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the, the Meholite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on a hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven of them were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days at the beginning of the barley harvest. So these seven guys hang. They were not the ones who perpetrated the crime. The ones who perpetrated the crime are already dead. Saul and, and whoever was in the army who, who did what Saul asked to be done. But these seven guys hanging illustrate something. They illustrate that years after the choices that we make in rebellion against God, other people are going to pay the price for what we have chosen to do. Other people who had nothing to do with the choice. We make choices in our life. We make decisions about what we're going to do. Uh, you know, and we think that it only is going to affect me. It's only going to be a problem for me. And the reality is, two, three generations later, people are still bearing the repercussions of that choice. That's why the scripture declares... For the wisest man who ever lived, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, he said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean into your own understanding. Trust in Him. A long time ago, my dad made a decision. He made a decision that's only going to affect him. He was not going to stay with my mom anymore. He was going to go with a woman he'd been counseling at church who was having a difficult time in her marriage. And so he decided that, that he would be with her. And so they ran off because it's only going to affect him. So he lost his ministry. He had to turn away from the church that he was pastoring at. He had walked away from all that stuff, but it's only going to hurt me. So three boys, at that moment, all entered into a time of rebellion. For 30 years. For 30 years. Until, really until the last year or two. Finally my youngest brother is now come back. And that rebellion. 
of those three boys, not his fault. That was their choice. It was my choice to rebel. That rebellion affected my kids. My brother's rebellion affected their kids. And so it goes. The sins of the father passed on to the son. Doesn't mean that they're going to pay the price for it. It means they are affected by it. They are affected by the sins of the father. There's no such thing as this sin is only going to affect me. There's no such thing as I just need to think about myself. I need to make myself happy. Well, while you're making yourself happy, you're burning the people all around you. And God wants us to remember that. Saul's rebellion, he's long gone. But the children of Saul are still paying the price for the rebellion of their great-grandfather. Or their grandpa. They're still paying the price for the choices that he made. So they hang on a tree. They become the curse. Who became a curse for us? Jesus. He became a curse. So that we could be set free from the price of the curse. Well, these seven guys are hung on a tree. They're not hung like in the westerns. They're hung on a tree. They're strapped to the tree. They die of exposure. They rot on the tree. Their bodies decompose until there is only bones left. They're not just on the tree for a couple of days or a day or an afternoon. They are strapped to the tree and they become a symbol or a sign of God's curse upon those who would disobey his word. We stand under the hands of the judgment of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living and holy God. Because we are guilty. But there's also a picture in this story that God wants us to see as we continue on. It says, Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains. That's six months. For six months... And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field at night. For six months, their mother went out, set sackcloth over a rock, and would not let the birds pick the bones, would not let the wild animals tear them apart. She guarded over their dead bodies for six months. Because they're still her babies. As far as she was concerned, they hadn't done nothing wrong. There they are on the tree. They've become the curse. But she's not going to let wild animals tear apart. So she pours out her love on these, on these carcasses up in the tree. Verse 11 says, David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. So David is moved by compassion. And he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Remember, Jabesh-Gilead went and got their bodies down. Their bodies were nailed to a wall. Their bodies were hung also as a symbol 
on this wall of the Philistine city that they'd been conquered. And so he went to Jabesh-Gilead, and he took their bodies. And he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and of Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Selah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. See, the way the Jews bury is they would leave a body in a tomb until it rotted and all that was left was bones. And then they'd gather the bones and put them in an ossuary. The ossuary is just a small box. Most often they would place the thigh bone in this small box and they would save that bone for the resurrection. They would save that bone for the resurrection. They would save that body and they would put it in a family tomb so that when Messiah came, when the resurrection occurred, which we read about in Daniel chapter 12, which will happen about Revelation 19 when Jesus returns and he comes back to the Valley of Armageddon and then that battle is over, there will be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, just like the Lord promised through Daniel the prophet. So when David went and he gathers up all their bones... Listen to what he's saying to the mother. I know they're gone right now. But God is a righteous judge. And while their lives may have been forfeited here, it does not mean that their lives are forfeited at the resurrection. It doesn't mean. Everything that happens here is temporary. Every wrong will be made right when Christ rules and reigns. But we think every wrong is always going to be wrong and we're just going to have to deal with it. No. Righteous and true are the judgments of Jesus Christ. Every wrong is going to be made right. There will be the retribution of all things. There will be a proper judgment. There will be ultimate justice. Everyone will declare that he is righteous and true in everything that he does. So David is saying, because of the love of a mom poured out on on her children, David gathers up all the bones so that they would be in the family tomb for the resurrection. David's saying, they're with the Lord. It's God's choice. Now, that doesn't mean Saul's saved or any of the other ones are. I don't know. God knows that. But David gathers the bones to show the mom They're not on the tree. They're not the curse anymore. They're not hung in all these places. They're here in the tomb, and God will judge. And he'll do what's right. And that brings a mom peace. Brings a mom peace because she trusts in the Lord. And we struggle with those concepts today. We struggle with those concepts because we face... Things that we, we see in the world as these horrible injustices. How can this be okay? How can this ever be made right? And the word declares that the living and the dead will all stand before God. You either trust God that he's able to do the judgment or you don't. When we struggle with it, we are saying, I don't trust you. You should put me in charge. But vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Give it to me. Trust it to me. So David gathers their bodies and puts them together. We'll pick it up. uh, Next we have the battles of the giants. 
And, uh, and we'll pick that up next time we get together. But as we look at these two stories and these difficult events to put in the light of, of Scripture and in the, in the kingdom of David and what's happening with David, we want to recognize as we see them the evidence of what sin does in life and the understanding that God is the one who is going to make it all make sense. He's the one who puts it all together. Just because someone died, just because Ananias and Sapphira walked into church one day after they had lied to the Holy Spirit, and Peter says, you have not lied to the Spirit, but you have lied to God, and they dropped down dead, does not mean that the, the eternal position of Ananias and Sapphira is in the gates of hell, and they're burning because they told a lie. What it means is, God's judge. And in the resurrection... He will do what's right. You just got to trust him. If it's right for them to be in hell, that's where they'll be. If it's right for them to be in heaven, that's where they'll be. Whether they lived or died here, this is all preparation for eternity with him. The question we ask ourselves is, will you trust him? Will you trust your sovereign? Or will you, like Sheba, declare, oh, he has no sovereignty over me. I make my own decisions, do my own thing, I know what's going on. I won't be ruled by this man, because that's the declaration the scribes and the Pharisees at the crucifixion. We have no king but Caesar. Or, will we proclaim the rightful title of Jesus Christ? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You know that's what they put over the cross? Yahweh Natser Hat. Yahweh Natser Ha Yehudim. On a cross. The acrostic. Y H W H. That's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the name of God. God on the cross over the head of Jesus. Is he your sovereign? Trust him. Trust him that he'll bring the pieces together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Trust him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you. We could study your word or we could go through the pages of scripture. I pray, Lord, that your word would find fruitful soil within our life and a place where it might grow. That we might bear fruit. That we might continue to grow and desire to understand in deeper and deeper ways the truth of your word declared to us. God, we ask your blessing as we go from this place. Lord, enable us, equip us that we might be your witnesses to a world that needs to know you and understand you. And Father, we pray that you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.